God made the world for God. You know, you have to understand this, or you haven't really begun to understand the biblical revelation. God made the world for God. We saw it last week. Remember Romans eleven thirty six, 36? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And I asked you, do you love it? I asked you, do you love it that God made the world for God? God didn't make the world for you. Now, okay, most of humanity believes that the, the world is here for them. The universe revolves around them. If we read our Bibles, we understand God made the world for God. Are you glad about that? This is a very telling reality. Are you glad God made the world for God? And we've been talking about this. This is good news for the, for the born-again believer. Why is it good news? Because everything's about God, and the Bible tells us that if indeed everything is about God, then everything's about my joy, because the glory of God is my joy as a, as a born-again believer. So I thought it would be good to talk about joy, because I've been, I've been hammering this the last four weeks or so, and it seemed good to talk about joy. So I thought I would begin... This way, back in uh, the mid '90s, I I was still in business and preaching on the side, and I had a sermon coming up, and I wanted to talk a little bit about joy. I don't think it was Matthew 13:44, but I wanted to talk about the biblical concept of joy. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll ask everybody I run into today, when was the last time they used the word joy? So I'll ask you, when was the last time you used the word joy in a non-religious Christian biblical context? I asked everybody, my boss, vendors, salespeople, the guy at Taco Bell drive-thru, I asked everybody, when was the last time the word joy crossed your lips? Now, the men were really bad. The men, I think they felt like it was unmanly to say they ever used the word joy. They would choke out something about their family. Uh, women were good. The women were pretty good. Who wants to guess what the women would say about the last time they really experienced joy? Well, the women almost universally talked about their wedding day and or giving birth to a child. Um, again, the men were awful, so I want to I exhort you men. It's not unmanly. It's not unmanly to talk about joy. Here's the definition, the word joy. A condition or feeling of great pleasure, happiness, or delight. Now, I saw a synonym I didn't expect to see, which really augments the meaning from a biblical perspective. One of the synonyms for the word joy is fruition. Fruition. Let me give you the definition. The agreeable emotion accompanying the expectation, acquisition, or possession of something desirable. I'll read it to you again. The agreeable emotion that accompanies the ex expectation, acquisition, or possession of something desirable. This is uh, very helpful as we look at the biblical concept of joy. In the deepest sense... Joy involves completion. Biblical joy is about completion. 
For from him, through him, and to him are all things which include you. And until you're reconciled to your creator, you will never have fruition. You will never have completion. You will never have joy. This is a big deal. I love this this related word or this synonym for joy. Biblical joy, you know, on a human perspective, as I shared with you earlier, as the women would share, it was about some circumstantial happiness. Well, I was married to my sweetheart or I gave birth to, to my first child. You know, it was, it was circumstantial, right? You, you see what I'm saying? Human beings think of it in terms of circumstance. It's not like that in the Bible. <laughs> the Bible, the Bible is pervasive. 500 mentions of, I think it was joy and delight. There was one other synonym I, re, I don't recall at the point. 500 references or mentions. It's a pervasive theme. It's just a reality. God is a happy God. You know what Paul told Timothy, right? The blessed God, which is the synonym for blessed is happy. He's a happy God. He's a joyous God. His exuberance, his infinite exuberance is on display in the world. Human happiness and joy tends to be about happenings. It is circumstantial. When the Bible speaks of joy, it speaks of fruition. It speaks of completion. It ultimately is speaking about reconciliation. We have been estranged through our own sin. We have been estranged from our Creator. Through Jesus Christ, we find that completion as we are reconciled to Him. Colossians 1.16, we were created by Him and for him. So for the born again Christian, it all is all about joy. We saw it in the text, right? Joy is in the text. All of these parables in Luke, pardon me, in Matthew 13, all eight of them are about true conversion. What does it look like? What does it look like to really come into relationship with Jesus Christ? Joy is a big part of that. God creates for his glory. And for the joy of his people. It's just the biblical reality. So let me ask you. Do you understand about God's joy? <laughs> Go read John 17. You're supposed to understand about God's joy. Jesus said, I give you. Anybody remember? My joy. Divine joy. How big is that? How big is God's joy? It's big. Shall we say it's infinite, it's eternal, it's unending, it's everlasting, it's without boundary. And we're supposed to be tasting that. We're not there yet. We won't, we won't fully taste it till we get on the other side, but that's part of Christianity, right? We talked last week about the music, hearing the music. And also, as we have just mentioned, tasting the joy. So this text just seemed like a perfect complement to the mini series we're in about um, the deep, emotive, visceral characteristics of what it looks like to genuinely know, love, and follow God. Last week I shared with you from Romans 12:1 uh, that great text. We saw it. Romans 11:36. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. And then. Paul turns the corner, the Holy Spirit turns the corner, and he says, what are you going to do with this 
you know, 11 chapters of theology, a few verses of doxology, and then he says what? He says what? Go do it, effectively. That's my paraphrase. Go do the Word of God. Here's Peterson's paraphrase of that 12, 1, chapter, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He's calling the Christian to take our everyday life, our ordinary life, our sleeping, eating, going to work life, our walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Now this is something we can ha happily do, like the guy in Matthew 13, right? From joy, he sold all that he had. It wasn't re religious obligation. It wasn't so he hoped he doesn't go to hell, right? How many people do you talk to who profess to be Christians and really their primary motivation is I don't want to go to hell? This is completely inadequate from a biblical perspective. Now, no one wants to go to hell and Jesus is the only way out. But if you're operating on that level, you haven't begun to understand the message of the Bible, right? This is about real joy. This is about transcendent joy. It's not about getting out of hell, merely. That's wholly inadequate. And, and, and I would even say close to blasphemous, okay? Beloved, look, God made the world for God. You got to keep that in your head. You got to keep that in your head. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 9. Paul did all things for the sake of the gospel. It's what the true believer understands. So why do we why, why do we as Christians Born-again believers give our lives away to God, as the Apostle Paul's talking about. Why do we do it? Because we ought to. No. Why do we do it? Because we should. No. Why do we do it? Because we get Matthew 13, 44. From joy, he sold all that he had, that he might have the treasure. Capital T, treasure. That is Jesus Christ. From joy, he saw his fruition. He saw his completion. It's in Christ, right? Some of you think your fruition and completion is in your job or it's in your marriage or it's in your family or it's in your bank account. This guy saw rightly. This guy in Matthew 13, 44, he saw his fruition and completion. His name is Jesus Christ, you, you know, if you've been around very long, you know that I've said many times, I quote C.S. Lewis about the fact that it's not that our, our uh, desires are too strong, they're too weak. We settle for this. When God has offered us that, right, he's our reward. And Lewis makes the point rightly that our desires are not too strong, they're too weak. If you're not radically pursuing Christ, your desires are too weak. They are too weak. God gives the kind of joy. I love this. And Lewis says this. God gives the kind of joy that what? Makes you serious. <laughs> right? Seriously joyful? Joyfully serious. This is, uh, this is what the Bible is talking about.
We are, as I say on occasion to parrot John Piper, we are Christian hedonists. We, ha we, we understand that God is our ultimate treasure. God is our ultimate pleasure. We are the guy in Matthew 13, 44. No one, no thing, no pleasure, no possession, no accomplishment, no fame, no conceit can begin to compare with Jesus Christ. We said it two weeks ago. What did Moses learn in his walk with God? Moses learned that God created Moses to fill Moses up with God. You're supposed to know this and you're supposed to be about pursuing this, right? This is not just theoretical. This is something I pursue that I would be filled up with God. So I'm, I'm exercising the Christian disciplines that God may fill me up with God because everything's about God, because God made the world for God, for from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. So if I'm outside uh, that equation, I'm not living at all. I don't know anything about life. I certainly don't know anything about joy. So Moses had learned that very important lesson that I pray each of us in this room have learned. Most of humanity knows nothing about real joy. The true Christian gets it. The true Christian gets it. Again, a pervasive theme in the Bible. The God of the Bible, as I said earlier, is, is eternally happy. And it's evident in the created order. Let me quote John Piper one more time. I love this quote. It's been in my heart and mind for a long time. I read this probably 20 years ago. Listen to Piper about, about the God of the Bible. Our Father's heart is full of deep and unshakable happiness. And we can be sure that when we seek our happiness in Him, we will not find Him out of sorts. We will not find a frustrated, gloomy, irritable father who wants to be left alone, but instead a father whose heart is so full of joy, it spills out onto all who are thirsty. Yes, creation was awash in joy. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted, Job 38, 7. Yes, redemption was driven by joy, Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. And yes, eternity will be overflowing with joy. Psalm 16, 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So if the, create, the Creator God is full of irrepressible joy, I want to ask you, if you're not, why not? If you claim to belong to Him, why not? Now listen, I get it. I'm 66 years old Wednesday. How about that? 66 Wednesday. I get it. I know sometimes we are discouraged. Sometimes we are depressed. Sometimes it is difficult. But what you have to do as a professed Christian is fight that. You have to proactively fight that. God expects you to fight that because he's the source of all joy. I'm not, saying we, I'm not saying it's not hard being a human being, a regenerate human being living in, living in a fallen world. I'm not saying that. It is. But beloved, you have access to infinite joy. Sometimes we do have to fight for it. Sometimes it's not, it, it, it's not, it doesn't come natural to us. We, sometimes we're on the mountaintop. Sometimes we're not. But I would encourage you 
Always be ready to fight for that joy. Why are why is mankind not full of joy if our Creator is full of joy? You know, Romans chapter 1. Mankind has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Mankind loves the world and the pride of life and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Man loves that more than he loves his Creator, which we've talked about over and over and over again. That's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to put anything before God. It's blasphemy. Even if you put your wife before God, it's blasphemy. Or your husband. Jesus Christ was very clear about this. And I'll touch on a couple of those verses in just a few moments. John 15, 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Beloved, we're talking about fruition and completion. So, let me give you the context of the text we're looking at tonight. Long introduction. But I'm laying some groundwork here. Let me give you the context. Luke chapter 8 tells us that Jesus was going through every city and village proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Now his disciples were traveling with him. Mary Magdalene was there. Joanna was there. Susanna was there and others. There was a great multitude following Christ. So he retreats and steps into a boat on the Sea of Galilee and the uh, multitude is on the shore. So Jesus is in a boat. Right? He steps back into the boat. He's a few feet offshore and he begins to address the multitude. I just want to give you the context here. You may remember Matthew 13, uh, 3 tells us that Jesus spoke to them many things in parables. Now, why does Jesus begin to speak in parables? Some of you have been taught wrongly. Some of you would say, they're, they're little farmer stories or little stories so people can understand. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus begins to hide the gospel from those, those who are hard-hearted. Now, I know that's, that, doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like what I learned in church, but it's actually what the Bible says. Let me just read the text. Matthew 13, 10 through 15. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. While hearing, they do not hear or understand. They see, but they will not perceive. The heart of this people has become dull, and they have closed their eyes. So this is a, the parables are a judgment against the folks and a mercy. A judgment against the unbelieving Jews and also a mercy. How is it a judgment? It's a judgment in that it kept them in the darkness that they loved. Men, John 3, men naturally love the darkness. You have friends and family that love the darkness. They love the darkness. So this par these parables are a judgment on them. And how is it a mercy? It's a mercy in that exposure to more truth from those who are hard-hearted and unwilling to be willing to come to Christ only increases their condemnation. So listen, let's not be, you know, syrupy about what this, what, what's being said here. If you've been taught that Jesus taught in parables to help people understand, that's exactly wrong. Okay? That is exactly wrong. According to Jesus 
himself. It is a judgment on those who will not hear. I think Jesus said it himself. I forget it's in John. I forget the chapter. You are unwilling to believe that you might have life. You are unwilling to believe that you might have life. And one of my favorite preachers said, they are unwilling to be willing. This is the true nature of mankind. So we see the parable of the soils, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, the dragnet, and the householder. We're, here we are, back to the text. Let me read it again, and we'll look at it quickly. 1344, Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, if you've been around a good church very long, you know that there's some principles of interpretation when it comes to a parable. The most important principle of interpretation when it comes to a parable is that there's one main point. Now, you can't press all the, all the particulars, right? If you start to press the peripheral points, you get, into all the, you get into all kinds of weeds. This is a main point. This is what parables are about, a main point. And what is the main point? Jesus is more valuable than anything or anyone else in your life. And if you don't recognize that, you are in grave error. You are in grave danger. And to come, you know, and to, to, to come to Christ is ultimately, it's about seeing that He's worthy, right? Seeing that He, he is my treasure. He is my pleasure, right? It's not just a religious thing I do so I don't go to hell. If God has granted eyes to see and ears to hear, we understand Right? Jesus Christ is our treasure and our pleasure. Jesus Christ is better than anything this life can give, and Jesus Christ is better than anything death can take. We see it in this man's life. <laughs> Whatever it takes, I'm coming to Christ. That's the metaphor. Whatever it takes, I want Him in my life. Whatever it takes, whatever it look like, looks like, whatever it costs, I want Him in my life. No price is too great to have a Savior like Him. This is the point. This is not complicated. So I know you guys can truly understand. And it's true, isn't it? Treasure is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Treasure is in the eye of the beholder. This guy wanted God. I'll ask you, how bad do you want God? You know, I always quote my seminary uh, preacher, the guy th that I sat under when I was in seminary. You get as much of God as you want. Now, this is a convicting statement, but it is true. You get as much of God as you want. How much of God do you have? This guy wanted God, right? This is another component Another important principle in, in the parable here, he wanted God. It wasn't like, well, you know, I've, I've got God in my orbit and I got him in my back pocket. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I'm all right. You know, I'm good. That wasn't the way it was with this guy. He wanted God. 
And he was willing to pay whatever it costs to have Jesus Christ. This is a pretty big deal. So joy is driving this God. Pardon me. Joy is driving this guy. And we see that he wants God above all things. Now, I've shared this verse with you the last two Sundays, but I'm going to share it again. Because, again, it buttresses all that we're talking about tonight. This is the Apostle Paul sitting in prison, writing the book of Philippians. Listen to what he says. This is about wanting. This is about wanting God. Listen to what he says. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him that I may know him. Paul is the guy effectively in Matthew 13, 44. It's the same thing being expressed. I want God above all else. Now, what did Paul love before he became a Christian? Before God knocked him off his horse on the way to Damascus. What did Paul love? He was a perfect Jew and he loved it. He loved that he was a perfect Jew. He loved his Jewishness. He loved his ethnicity. He loved the law. He loved religion. One glimpse of Jesus, it all changed, right? <laughs> it all changed. He says, it's all dung to me now. It's all dung to me now. That's the, that's the literal. That's the literal Greek. It's dung to me now. So I, I hope you're getting the sense here of, uh, of what's going on in, in Matthew 13, 44, right? From joy, he wanted God and you couldn't stop this guy, right? You couldn't stop this guy. You can't stop a real Christian who's caught a glimpse of Jesus. You can't stop them. You can't stop them with a machine gun, as my mentor used to say. You can't stop them with a machine gun. They've seen their joy, their completion, their fruition. And you can't hold them back. You can't hold them back. Paul had learned that God created Paul to fill up Paul with God. And he wasn't going to settle for religion anymore, man. Right? He wasn't going to do that. He's caught a glimpse of God. So Paul wasn't a health, wealth, and prosperity guy. He wasn't merely pursuing the blessings of God. He was pursuing God because he loved God. Because it, he's caught a glimpse of God. God created the world for God. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Paul's on the bandwagon. Paul gets it. I'm going to ask you, do you get it? Do you love it that God created the world for God? Is that, uh, you know, one of the foundations in your theological wall? When you get up on Monday morning, God created the world for God. So how do I fit in? What does it look like for Jim to fit into... The fact that God created the world for God. What does that look like? All right, I'm going to give you an example. Biblical example. We'll see it again. Turn over with me, if you would, to Luke 19. Luke 19, famous passage, beginning in verse 1. I'll just summarize it. I won't read the whole text, but this is about a little guy who was in a tree. Who knows who I'm talking about already? Zacchaeus, right? 
So you probably know the story. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, meaning he loved money more than he loved his own people, right? So he was hated in the community. He was a chief tax collector, which means he was fabulously wealthy, all right? This is Zacchaeus, tax collector. He loved money more than he loved the good opinion of his countrymen. You come down. He was a short guy. He was trying to see Jesus, verse 3, verse 4. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order that he might see Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus came to the place and he looked up. Don't you love divine appointments? <laughs> don't, you love, don't you love divine appointments? God looked up. Now, if you're a Christian tonight, you've had one of these appointments, Right? when you came face to face with your creator and your redeemer. I, just, I, I love how the Bible talks about this, right? He looked up and, uh, and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus hurries down. And what do we see in verse 6? What does your text say? How does, he, how does Zacchaeus receive Jesus? How does, he, how does he receive him? What does it say in your Bible? Gladly. Gladly. It's always there. Gladly. For joy, the guy sold all that he had and he could possess the field. And Zacchaeus is glad. He's met his creator. He's met his redeemer. He's glad. Man, you know, we just kind of read over stuff, don't we? It's so easy to just read over this stuff. He's glad. Are you glad? You're supposed to be glad. You may be sorrowful, but you're always rejoicing, as Paul reminds us. And the people grumbled, saying, look, he, he meets with a sinner. Verse 8. Just out of the blue. Jesus had, they haven't even begun to talk. Just out of the blue. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which of course he has, he's a tax collector, I will give back four times as much. It just, it's unbidden. Jesus hasn't said anything to him yet, but Zacchaeus has met his pleasure and his treasure. And he can't help it, man. He's got to come clean, right? He's got to come clean. I'm giving half of my stuff away. To start with, and I'll give back four times as much if, I, if I've defrauded anybody. Now, the, the Jewish law at this time was you, you had to give back a fifth, and a 20% more. He says, I'll do four times as much. He's glad. Money doesn't mean anything to him anymore compared to Jesus Christ. I love this picture of conversion, man. I love this. I think it's so beautiful. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Verse 9. They haven't talked at all. Jesus says, he, Jesus can see, listen, Jesus can see that Zacchaeus is wholly in love with him already. He can see, Jesus can see that Zacchaeus is full of joy and that Jesus is in fact his treasure and his pleasure. Beloved, Jesus knows where you are with him. My question is, are you being honest about where you are with him?
He already knows. When he, when he sees this kind of repentance in Zacchaeus, he says, salvation, what does it say? Salvation has come to this house today, right? I think it's a beautiful picture. I love that. Yeah, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus' heart, his affections, and his actions are declaring that he has a new treasure and a new pleasure. No longer is it money, it's God. And now he's caught up in that current, God created the world for God. So he's caught up in it. And again, I'll just ask you lovingly, are you caught up in that current that God created the world for God? And Man, I'm jazzed about that. I'm really jazzed about it. It's not just good doctrine. I'm jazzed about it. I love that biblical truth. It's what we see all over the Bible. I'll just give you a few examples. Abraham left his home for parts unknown. Sarah was not only too old, she was too barren, but she believed and conceived. Moses took down the most powerful nation in the world with a stick in his hand. Gideon and the boys went on the offensive, outnumbered 450 to 1. Mary of Bethany worshipped Jesus Christ with a year's worth of wages. How much do you make a year? Do the math. The widow gave her last cent. Matthew left his career. Peter left his business. Paul left his religion. This is what's apt to happen when we meet our treasure. We, as we talked about last week, we are a peculiar people and we're prone to peculiarity with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about fruition. It's about completion. It's about joy. You remember when the angels came to the shepherds announcing the birth of Jesus. Remember what they said? I bring you good news of great joy. And listen, I've been doing this a long time. I meet a lot of Christians. You can't find joy in their life. You cannot find You can't hear it in their speech. You, you don't see it in their life. And listen, I get it. Sometimes it's hard. But the, the, the issue is we can, as Paul says, we can be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. There's always this, this undercurrent, even in our hardest day. I heard the story told of a, of, a, of a woman who lost her husband. He was dying, and some visitors were, happened to be there right at the moment when her husband died. And, and she was radiant. And one of the visitors was offended that she was so radiant at the death of her husband. And she said something to the effect, my husband deserved to go to hell, but he ain't going there. Now he's in the presence of his creator and his redeemer. She was radiant with joy. Obviously, she would process grief. But at that moment, she was radiant with joy. If you're born again, you understand. If you're not, you don't. So, Matthew 13, 44. The guy knows why he was made. He was made for God. And he wants God. This is a picture of true, born again, 
conversion, the kind of joy that sets you free, the kind of joy that makes you fearless, the kind of joy that begets courage, the kind of joy that helps you or, you know, drives you to live like a true alien in exile upon the earth. We know that Jesus has not called us to lukewarm religion. He has called us to divine joy and completion and fruition. Now, you know this is true, right? Some of you guys are, most of you are old enough. You've probably has been in, most of you probably been in churches. Satan loves a lukewarm Christian. He loves it. He's laughing at you. The demons are laughing at you. Wormwood and screw tape are laughing at you. If you're a lukewarm Christian, he's got you right where he wants you. You haven't seen Christ at all. Or you would be like the Matthew 13, 44 guy. You'd be like that guy. Satan knows the difference. He knows if you've seen Jesus Christ or not. He knows if you're a Matthew 13, 44 Christian or not. He knows it. And if you're not, he's laughing at you. Yeah, go to church every day. Go to church. He's not worried about you. Right? Of course, let me say this. As a preacher, if you call yourself a Christian, you should be in church. It's a command of God. It's not only a command of God, we need it. We need to be together. But listen, don't... I say this lovingly. Just don't think you're fooling God or anyone else. Right? So if you're here under the pretense of simply being a churchgoer, I call you to Matthew 13, 44. From joy. From joy. Come. Right? From joy. Come. And... Meet your Savior. Of course, we know we're fully aware of the hard sayings of Jesus. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm just about done, but I want, to give you, I want to give you this. I'm going to read to you from about four different texts. <clears throat> and let me just say, let me summarize it at the outset before I read it. So you'll kind of know what the, what the point is. Jesus Christ is my preeminent joy and treasure above family. Jesus Christ is my preeminent joy and treasure above self. Jesus Christ is my preeminent joy and treasure above things. Jesus Christ is my uh, preeminent joy and treasure above security. Now listen to these texts. And, and I want to say this. When an unbeliever hears these texts, they hear loss. When a believer hears these texts, they hear gain. Okay, this is this is the this is the line of demarcation. So as I read these texts, we can test ourselves, right? Do I hear gain or do I hear loss? These are the words of Jesus. All of these texts. If you want the references, email me. I'll send you my notes. First one, Matthew ten. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But the joy of Matthew 13, 44 is bigger. True conversion's bigger, Right? Bigger than family. It's a joy bigger than family. Next text, Matthew 16. 
Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 13, 44, joy is bigger. It's bigger than self. It's bigger than self-preservation and self-aggrandizement. It's bigger. Jesus said, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possession. That's Luke 14, 33. Matthew 13, 44 is bigger than that, right? It's bigger than my stuff, than my things. Last text. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. <clears throat> If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Matthew 13, 44. Joy is bigger than that, right? It's bigger than security. It's bigger. We know that Jesus said these things. So why would anyone want to be a Christian? <laughs> because of fruition and completion. Obviously salvation. But there's something, shall I say, as important going on in the regenerate soul. Completion and fruition. Understanding that God made Jim to fill Jim up with God. And being excited about that. So did you hear gain or loss as I read the texts? The, very, the red words, the words of Jesus Christ, did you hear gain or loss? It's a good test for us. So here's the deal with the Bible. Here's the deal with New Testament Christianity. On the one hand, on the temporal hand... The gospel is a call to give up all we have. It just is. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. It's what the Bible says. Okay? On the other hand, you should like this part for sure. On the other hand, the eternal hand, the gospel is a call to receive all that God has for you. Right? So there's a sense in which it feels like a temporal loss, but it's eternal gain. Man, I, I talk to a lot of Christians. They don't get this. They don't get it. They're not making a, a distinction here between what is temporal and what is eternal. You guys know the famous saying, happy is the man who exchanges that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. If we've truly met Jesus Christ, we're like the guy in Matthew 13, 44. We happily exchange the worldly lie for eternal truth. We happily trade anxiety for divine assurance. We happily exchange lukewarm religion for born-again discipleship. We happily trade temporal treasures for eternal treasure. We happily exchange temporal dust for eternal glory. If we've understood the words of Jesus, we know that Christianity is all or nothing. We're all in or we're not in. This is not debatable from anyone who has a sound understanding of the Scripture. So I'll close with a C.S. Lewis quote and we're done. I like this. I want you to hear this. Some of you have heard it before. 
C.S. Lewis likens God to the sea. Okay, God is the sea. All right, and he likens mankind to timid swimmers. You've already got the analogy, right? God means for you to jump in. God means for you to swim in the deeps. But let me just read his analogy, and we're done. Many go down to the sea, but they neither dive, nor swim, nor float. They only dabble and splash, careful not to get out of their depth, and holding on to the lifeline which connects them to all things temporal. But of course, the lifeline is a death line. <laughs> it's not so much of our time and so much of our attention that God demands. It's not even all of our time and all of our attention. It is ourselves. God is calling you to himself. He wants all of you. He doesn't want just words off your tongue. He wants your heart. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees, man, right? You love me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Lewis continues, while God will be infinitely merciful to our repeated failures, I know no promise that he will accept our deliberate compromise. When we try to keep within us, within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. I love this. Therefore, in love, God claims all. It's Matthew 13, 44. And he says this, and I'll leave you with this. You can't bargain with God about this. You can't give a little bit of yourself to God. You don't get to bargain with God. Nobody bargains with God. God sets the terms. It's his way or no way, right? God sets the terms. We do not get to, as Lewis says, we do not get to bargain with him. Real Christians seek Jesus. They desire Jesus. They worship Jesus. And we give ourselves away to Jesus. We are the ultimate hedonists on the planet. He is our ultimate pleasure. We will not settle for anything less than God himself. Jesus, our ultimate treasure, pleasure, and joy. We get God, beloved. Now, all the false religions, they're just singing in the dark. Our God is God. And we get God. It's Matthew 13, 44. From joy, you must want the gospel. You can't inherit, inherit your parents' faith. You personally must see the value of Christ and pursue that value. This is part of the text tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We praise you. What a great message. Simple, yet piercing and true. Fundamental, foundational, essential again, that we understand this. It's always Matthew 13, 44. It's always from joy. We run to Christ from joy. For we have met our treasure. We have met our pleasure. We have understood that God made the world for God and we love it. And He fills our heart with infinite exuberance. We love you, Lord. 
We give all praise, glory, and honor to Your name. We pray this again in the name of Jesus. Amen.